ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Are you looking for a passive ETF that isn't so passive? The Motley Fool 100 Index ETF ticker TMFC is an index fund that's filled with high-conviction stock picks from real professional analysts. It puts the 100 top-rated stock picks from the analysts at the Motley Fool LLC into one simple low-cost ETF. For more on this fund from Motley Fool Asset Management, visit fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. That's fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right. Joining me will be Laura Krieger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify. And as usual, we have a very nice grab bag of topics to get into, including last week's spot Ethereum ETF filings. I'm sorry. I at least have to touch on these. You're going to have to bear with me. But I promise we'll then branch out into some other topics, including fixed income ETFs. Uh, specifically shorter duration fixed income ETFs. I also want to ask Laura about a pretty interesting phenomenon this year with uh, NASDAQ 100 ETFs. Maybe not a surprising phenomenon, but I think interesting nonetheless. So I'll explain that. And then we'll uh, talk thematic ETFs and the deal between Amplify ETFs and uh, ETFMG. So a lot to get to here. I'll also be joined this week by David Mann, head of ETF product and capital markets at Franklin Templeton, who now has over $13 billion in ETF assets. They've had a great year of inflows, nearly $3 billion. And what's interesting about Franklin is they offer products in all three broad ETF categories. They have pure passive ETFs, they have smart beta ETFs, and then, of course, traditional active ETFs. And so we're going to take a, a little tour through that lineup and hear how David views the world on each of those categories and why they're having some success here. So certainly look forward to that conversation. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's start with Vetify's Laura Krieger. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected. Laura, thank you for joining me this week. So excited to be here. All right, so look, for the uh, sake of listeners, because believe it or not, I am actually getting some feedback that I'm spending way too much time on crypto ETFs. <laughs> I, I don't know if you saw this. I recently did a, 
uh, podcast survey, which which thank you for everybody who who filled that out. But that told me I was spending too much time on crypto ETFs. And so very quickly, what I want to do is just touch on these spot Ether ETF filings. And then uh, I promise to everyone there won't be another mention of crypto ETFs for the remainder of the podcast. However, uh, I don't know if you saw this. I, I, I just saw this before we uh, we started recording. Franklin Templeton filed for a spot Bitcoin ETF. And guess who I have on after you? David Mann from Franklin Templeton. So I'm going to have to try to restrain myself. I think the good thing is I know he can't talk about SEC filings, but uh, interesting nonetheless. Um, okay, so look. Last week, uh, right on the heels of Grayscale's court victory the week prior, we saw ARK file for a spot Ether ETF, uh, the ARK 21 shares Ethereum ETF. And then Van Eck uh, had actually filed for one back in 2021. And so the the exchange, they filed 19 B4s for both of these, right, to list them on that exchange. And I'll just ask you, uh, do, do you think these filings were – a direct result of the grayscale ruling and any other hot takes you would offer here? You know, it's so funny that uh, you have decided not to really talk about crypto ETFs because I think this is the most interesting time in crypto ETF land that it's been for, for many, many moons. So, um, but yes, absolutely. I think they were inspired uh, to file these funds by the grayscale ruling. Um, I'm not surprised it came in a crowd, right? Because if one issuer is going to file, then you know, others are going to race to file too. Everybody wants to be first to market. Um, I do think the grayscale ruling kind of changed the game for crypto spot crypto ETFs. Uh, I think that spot Ether ETFs at this point are an almost sure thing because spot Bitcoin ETFs are an almost sure thing. I, I you know, caveat it with saying almost there, but um, you know, the the ruling resolved what has always been the SEC's holdup, which is the surveillance issue that, you know, exchanges that are listing spot crypto ETFs have to prove to the SEC that they can spot manipulation and fraud on those underlying markets. And the SEC always said that, you know, the existing measures just weren't good enough. Well, the Court of Appeals said, uh, actually, they are. So, uh, and that the SEC was being, I think, arbitrary and capricious is the quote in their judgment. So um, if the surveillance agreements are good and the market, the CME is a regulated market, then there's not that many hurdles left to jump. It's only really a matter of time. But you know, kind of stemming back to the, the feedback you got on your survey, is anybody going to care, right? That's the question. Um, the big, uh, the Bitcoin features, the biggest Bitcoin features ETF, that's ticker BITO or BITO, that's seen some mild pickup in flows over the past three months, about 200 million, but others are flat or have seen red. And so, you know, I think uh, it's really going to depend or rather um, interest in crypto, spot crypto ETFs and in, in crypto in general is going to depend on Bitcoin going back to those lofty price levels of 2021 and 2022. But for a large part uh, of the crypto space, the bloom's off the rose, you know. Yeah, I hear you. I still think that spot Bitcoin and if we get spot uh, Ether ETFs, I think they're going to be massive uh, successes. I I think I'm a little tongue in cheek here with a podcast. I think part of the the feedback I'm getting is because I've beaten this topic into the ground. right? (laughs) Uh, But but I think in all seriousness, I think that financial advisors in particular uh, have been waiting for spot products uh, to to allocate to. And so I think once these are live, I've said before, I I stand by it. I think these are going to be 
the biggest launches in the history of ETFs. And we can quantify that however you want. I think by whatever measure, these are going to break all sorts of uh, launch records when they come to market. I'll I'll just uh, reiterate something that you said, you know, as I thought about these um, 19B4 filings by SIBO, if you look through those, there are actually references to the grayscale ruling littered throughout right. those filings, right? I mean, VanEck and, and ARC, they were clearly prepared for a grayscale victory and obviously decided to pounce on this opportunity with a spot E3 ETFs. But, uh, you know, I've talked about this before. I think you, you hit the nail on the head. The overall logic here is pretty straightforward in that the SEC has already allowed ETFs holding CME-traded Bitcoin futures. It does sound like they're going to allow Ether futures ETFs, which – Makes sense, right? Because if they're comfortable mm-hmm. with CME traded Bitcoin futures in an ETF wrapper, then why wouldn't they be comfortable with CME traded Ether futures? And then you add in this grayscale ruling, which you laid out very well, where the court agreed with grayscale that there was no justification for the SEC to treat spot Bitcoin ETFs any differently than future based ETFs, at least as it pertains to fraud and manipulation, because the spot and futures markets, as I've been saying for a long time, I think a lot of people have, they're obviously tied at the hip. And so sure. if you put this all together, if the SEC is comfortable with ETFs holding Bitcoin and Ether futures, then they should also be comfortable with ETFs holding spot Bitcoin and, and spot Ether, assuming this grayscale ruling stands. So I think it's pretty clear to see how a spot Ether ETF could could be approved. And again, Laura, I mean, I, uh, I, I remain bullish on the prospects for these overall. By the way, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. I, I think we're going to see filings any day now for combined spot Bitcoin and Ether ETFs. Any thoughts on that? I think it's, I think that's not out of the realm of possibility. It makes a lot of sense. You think that uh, spot Bitcoin is in the future soon and spot uh, Ether is in the future soon, then it stands to reason that you would blend those two in a portfolio. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Issuers uh, aren't going to wait. I think we'll, we'll see that any yeah. day now. Okay, enough crypto ETF talk. Let's move on. <laughs> And I actually want to pick up on a story that Tom Lydon and I were discussing last week, which is flows into fixed income ETFs and sort of this tug of war between shorter duration ETFs and longer duration ETFs. And if you'll indulge me, I want to give you the same uh, simplistic example I gave Tom, which is that if you look at an ETF like the iShares 0-3-month Treasury Bond ETF, ticker SGOV, you can get about a 5.3% SEC yield with basically no risk, right? There's really no duration risk with that ETF. Or you can get a 4.3% yield in an ETF like the iShares 20-plus year Treasury Bond ETF, ticker TLT. The problem there is it has a duration of 17. So way more duration risk and what about a full percentage point less than yield. And my my take to Tom uh, in... By the way, I said this last week, not investment advice. Everyone do your own homework. But uh, my, my take was that SGOV just seems like a better risk-reward proposition to me. You, you know, why take on that duration risk when we have a Fed that got inflation wrong to begin with, right? So what makes you think they're going to get it right now? I, I think it's definitely possible rates go higher. But if you look at uh, flows, TLT is second out of all ETFs, over $15 billion this year. And so here's what I'll ask you. I, I, I guess first I would just love your thoughts on those TLT flows. But but then second, let's assume that I'm right, that it is better to stay shorter duration. Obviously, SGOV is not the only ETF option here. And so I'd be curious to hear where else you think investors might look. 
Gosh, I feel like we could have an entire uh, podcast, hour-long podcast dedicated <laughs> to just this question alone. So um, there's there's a couple of things here to tease apart. So the first thing that you you discussed the um, the the higher yields on the short end of the uh, short duration ETFs. You're absolutely right. With uh, those short duration funds paying five percent yield, no duration risk. I mean, that's a really compelling case, and a lot of advisors and investors agree with you. Just looking at the flows activity into uh, short duration funds, money market funds, cash equivalent funds this year. I saw this one stat in, uh, I think it's from Strategus, uh, that in August, money market ETFs took in nine times the amount of money as all U.S. equity funds. Nine times. That's crazy. And that's not a closed picture that suggests that investors believe, uh, you know, that the, the Fed is done hiking rates and that the worst is behind them and all of that stuff. Um, I will play a little bit of devil's advocate, I guess, and just mention that, you know, short duration funds are not without their own risks, right? You are subject to market timing issues, of course. So, you know, the, the market, especially now, seems to be turning on a dime some days. So if you get a, a you know, short-duration ETF that's rebalancing on a day when stocks are higher and yields are lower, then you're going to be kind of stuck in that scenario for a few months. And um, also, too, that those, those really juicy 5% yields that we're talking about aren't necessarily going to last forever and ever and ever either, right? Because they're only at the level that it is because the Fed has raised rates to deal with inflation. And you said it yourself that, you know, the Fed got it wrong with inflation. Um, it doesn't matter. Fed's the one pulling the lever mm-hmm. on on the, the rates. So um, once the Fed decides that inflation is no longer a, a threat, whether it is or not, they decide that they may start lowering rates, in which case those short-term yields are going to go down uh, as well. But, you know, that aside, um, the short-duration ETFs still extremely popular among investors. They've taken in you know, funds like T-Bill and FGov, which you mentioned, have taken in billions and billions both in August and in year-to-date. So I think with, um, you know, if I'm putting my sh- my uh, feet in the um, shoes of somebody looking at this um, the scenario, um, you're probably looking to stay as nimble as possible with short-duration ETFs while getting as much yield as you can. So you can do that with uh, floating rate notes. These are bonds with variable coupon rates that fluctuate based on uh, you know, standard certain benchmark short-term rates, like a Fed funds rate. And they're designed to reset on a fairly frequent basis. Some of them update rates on a weekly or even a daily basis. So you're never really caught on the wrong side of that timing issue for very long. So um, you know, when it comes to floating rate note ETFs, these have been very popular uh, thus far to date in, in 2023. I think iShares is TFLO is the one that a lot of folks reach to because, you know, it's, it's iShares, name on the tin. Um, but I have to point out that Wisdom Tree's USFR in particular, that's been a real standout. It's taken in about $5 billion year to date, um, and it kind of meets the, the things of what you were talking about earlier. It has a yield of 5.5% right now, basically zero duration, uh, a monthly payout, and better performance um, than TFLO with a 3.6% year to date return versus 3.5. So um, I think floating, if I were to, to look at the uh, under talked about story in the short duration ETF uh, ecosystem, it would really be USFR. 
Yeah, I think that's actually an under the radar ETF story, and I, I maybe that's that's not the right word to use because we ha- that thing has seen billions of uh, inflows, but I just don't feel like it's getting enough attention given the inflows yeah. that it's had. I'll, I'll just make a couple of quick points on on what you said there. Look, I think if you're loading up in ETFs like SGOV or T-Bill or, you know, those sorts of, of shorter duration treasury ETFs, or even if you get shorter duration uh, in corporate investment grade uh, bond ETFs, there's no question there's reinvestment risk. That is really the big risk if rates come down and you have to reinvest it at lower rates. But I've always viewed bonds as a ballast in the portfolio, and it just makes me nervous when you have something like TLT. And I get the, the type of environment TLT could perform well in. It could, it could absolutely be a good portfolio hedge if we get into a recession, rates come back mm-hmm. in. I get the whole um, framework as to why you don't TLT. But that's pretty significant risk if rates do jump meaningfully from here. And I, I think that's a lot of volatility in an area of the portfolio that I like to view as more of a ballast. And, and that's really where my decision-making process comes back on that. So I'll just leave that there. The, the other thing I'll note is uh, SGOV, and you hit on this with the flows into the shorter-duration products. It's not like investors disagree with me. That thing is ninth in uh, ETF flows overall. O- over $8 billion has gone into SGOV this year. And you just go down the board, some of the ETFs that you mentioned, there, there is a lot of interest there. But the money market funds are really the big story. Would you say nine times the flows? Nine times. That's just eye-popping stat there. And you're absolutely right. It's it's not just SGOV. It's T-Bill. It's, uh, Goldman Sachs has one that has been, I think it's G-Bill, uh, that's been taking in a lot of money year to date. Just short duration seems to be the story uh, of the year when it comes to 2023. So. Yeah, we'll see. If rates come in meaningfully, I'm going to get a bunch of uh, emails or people hitting me up on Twitter telling me how wrong I was. So, <laughs> um, All right. Uh, let's move on to another interesting story this year, which uh, is obviously the performance of the NASDAQ 100. So if you look at the QQQ ETF, that thing is now up 42% this year, 42%. I don't think anyone would have predicted that coming into this year. I would say, if anything, people would have thought it'd be down 42%. Uh, But there's a noteworthy ETF story that's sort of brewing beneath the surface here, which is that QQQ actually has about $700 million in outflows this year. I pulled that number as of this morning. That's almost hard to believe, given that it's up... 42%. 42%. But but here's the even more interesting part. If you look at the uh, mini QQQ, uh, so ticker QQQM, which does the exact same thing, right? It holds the NASDAQ 100 stocks, just like QQQ. That ETF has taken in almost $6 billion this year. And so my, my question for you on this is, do you think this is all about five basis points? Because QQQ has a 20 basis point fee. QQQM has a 15 basis point fee, right? So is that five basis points in, in fee differential making a, what is that, $6.5, $6.6 billion difference in flows? Oh, my ETF nerd heart is singing that you're asking me this question <laughs> because I think this is the coolest little under-the-radar story. Um, so I think the fee difference both is and isn't the reason why QQQM is taking in all of these assets uh, and QQQ isn't. So, um, well, I should be careful when I say it isn't. So as an investor, you hold these two ETFs for very different reasons, right? QQQ, it's a trading vehicle. You perf- you can perform all these sorts of short-term tactical strategies with it. 
you can short it, you can hedge it, it has an options market as liquid as the Atlantic Ocean. You can do so much with QQQ, but that's the thing, you do it with QQQ, right? You're not holding this fund to get exposure necessarily to the underlying stocks or sectors in the NASDAQ 100 portfolio as much as you are holding it to get exposure to QQQ, right? Then there's QQQM, and this is an ETF that you hold to get exposure to those underlying stocks and sectors in the NASDAQ 100. It's, you know, the index is a a little quirky, right? But it's a, a fine tech proxy, got some good stocks in it. And like you said, it's up 42% year to date. So if you are looking to allocate to the NASDAQ 100, you know, I, I would go for the cheaper vehicle than QQQ. So yes, the fee difference does matter. Uh, it's just as liquid as the triple Qs because it holds just the same stocks as the other one. Um, so yeah, I do think it, the fee difference matters there, but it's, it's also about how people want to use this thing in the first place. Uh, you know, if you are looking to make a long-term bet on the health of the NASDAQ 100, then you're going to choose QQQM. But if you're betting on the short-term performance story of QQQ, one that depends on this this vehicle's massive liquidity and depth of market, then you're just going to go and hold QQQ, right? So it's it's an interesting um, example of a of an ETF, like what we're always saying in ETF liquidity, there's the liquidity of the ETF and the liquidity of the underlying stocks. An ETF um, has both, and you have to ha- understand both to understand the full liquidity picture of, uh, of the vehicle itself. And QQQ is definitely one of those where um, the fund is so liquid at the fund level that it's kind of grown beyond uh, its function as a, a way to get exposure to the underlying index. So. Yeah, and there's some uh, additional interesting layers to the story. I don't know if you saw Bloomberg's Katie Greifield wrote about this in a Business Week, uh, maybe like three weeks ago, that QQQ, so Invesco doesn't actually make any money from that product, even yeah. though it's one of the largest ETFs as a 20 basis point fee, just because it's structured as a unit investment trust. And long story short, they, you know, they're paying for the index, they're paying for the, the custodian services, but then what's left over, they have to spend on marketing, which is why you see the Invesco QQQ brand plastered everywhere. So they, they make money in the sense that it can be spent on marketing and they've tried to structure that to get the Invesco name brand front and center. But I just think that's another interesting tidbit. Whereas with QQQM, uh, my understanding is if you look at the structure of that, they are actually, you know, making some basis points uh, on that product. So, yeah, that's a, mm-hmm. an interesting story. Um, okay, just a couple minutes left. You and I have not had a chance to discuss this uh, Amplify ETFs deal where, where they're buying ETFMG's ETF suite. That was announced back in June. And I believe that transaction should close before the end of the year. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm just curious what you made of that deal and and how you think it positions Amplify longer term. Sure. So I've been following, uh, obviously, ETFMG and Amplify for a very long time. Um, You know, I kind of... Uh, made my mark as an ETF reporter by uh, following uh, the the break you know the breaking news of, of MJ uh, when all of that uh, first came to to launch and the first marijuana ETF came to to market and and there was that kind of uh, interesting little switcheroo when it came to the index there and I, I think it's you know interesting and honestly it's just an incredible win for Christian and the Amplify team right I've known Christian a long time I know that this is a guy who's truly passionate about ETFs and this industry, very you know, passionate and protective of it. So 
I think no matter what else, the former ETF MG ETFs are going to find a lot more support and, frankly, I think more assets now that they're backed by Amplify because, you know, all those legal issues that ETF MG had accrued over the years between, you know, the hack lawsuit and MJ's legal battles and then the former CEO had some legal staff. So just all of these these issues had become a bit of a liability for the brand and something of a business risk that I think you know, many platforms and even some investors didn't want to deal with. So, you know, maybe the the ETFMG ETF just didn't have as many um, approvals and access to platforms as Amplify does. So that's kind of a shame because some of these funds are genuinely cool, first-of-their-kind ETFs, right? There's the first, you know, there's Hack, there's uh, MJ, there's SLJ, there's, you know, bulk shipping. And all of these funds were getting overshadowed by the the troubles with the brand. So I do think that, um, you know, it's a a great move for Amplify. Purchasing ETFMGs, ETFs gives the company kind of a a leg up on building out that massive, uh, you know, a bigger um, platform of thematic ETFs. So good for them. I was alluding to this um, in that question, but bigger picture, one of the reasons I wanted to ask you about Amplify and ETFMG is because they both obviously focus on thematic ETFs, even though I realize Amplify now has a smash hit in Devo, which is clearly not mm-hmm. a thematic ETF, but you hear what I'm saying. And I'll be visiting later with Moritz Pot from Tema ETFs, and this is a new issuer who really plans to hang their hat on thematic ETFs, uh, active thematic ETFs. And I'm just curious, Laura, as someone who's covered this segment of the market very closely, what do you think is the recipe for success for an issuer taking that approach? Like, is there anything in particular you would point to in terms of how Tema or any issuer focused on thematics might find success at this stage in the ETF industry, which is much more mature now than, than obviously where it was, say, 10 years ago? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, and I think it has less to do about, uh, you know, whether the funds are thematic in nature or not, but it's really a question that's posed for any ETF issuer that has a a breakout hit, and how do they scale beyond that, right? How do they build a sustainable uh, business beyond that? So, um, you know, sorry to kind of bring it back to Vetify, but I I don't know if you've heard the news that yesterday we announced we were acquiring uh, EQM indexes, and look, Indexes are not ETFs, right? It's not the same thing. We're not an ETF issuer and, and all that. But it's kind of the same idea that if you want to scale, uh, which is what Betify wants, which is what Amplify wants, which is what a lot of uh, people in the ETF industry want, you have to blend uh, at some point. You have to blend organic growth with inorganic growth. And you have to blend those, those great ideas with great acquisitions and put both to work for you in the smartest way possible. And um, I think... That's something that we've seen time and time again uh, in the ETF industry. It's the the uh, issuers that make really strategic, smart acquisitions that are the ones that achieve scale. And the ones that um, aren't able to do that, you know, never really do. Um, the, the biggest uh, case study here is Invesco, right? They, they um, bought a lot of companies over the years, uh, Oppenheimer and Guggenheim, and I think they had Rydex and there's some, like just all of these companies um, they, they acquired and used that, those smart ideas, those smart people to leverage their brand um, to the fourth largest uh, ETF issuer in the industry. So um, I think you know, if you're going to be an ETF issuer it's, uh, that, that achieves a larger scale, um, 
you can't just have the one idea. Um, you've got to be thinking about uh, what comes next. In some case, it's the next great idea. In some case, it's, you know, um, acquiring the next great idea, you know? Well, Laura, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, I stuck with tradition and crammed like two hours worth of podcast material <laughs> into 25 minutes. I uh, felt like the Micro Machines guy. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. That was Laura Krigger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify. Because commodities indices are more likely to represent the super cycles of yesteryear than today's new and emerging commodities regime, Newberger Berman's actively managed commodity strategy ETF seeks to transcend the limits of traditional indexing, offering both inflation insurance and an emphasis on the catalyst driving today's changing economy. Embrace the road ahead and learn more about NBCM at nb.com NBCM. An investor should consider NBCM's investment objectives, risks, fees, and expenses carefully before investing. This and other important information can be found in NBCM's prospectus, which you can obtain by calling 877-628-2583. All ETF products are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please refer to the prospectus for a complete discussion of NBCM's principal risks. Equities are the building blocks of any successful portfolio. From satellite exposure to core allocations, advisors must understand the best way to wield equities. Join Vetify on September 21st for the Equity Symposium and hear from industry experts and thought leaders. Register at etftrends.com slash webcasts slash equities symposium. That's E-Q-U-I-T-I-E-S. We're looking forward to seeing you there. ETF product and capital markets at Franklin Templeton, who currently offers 60 ETFs, over $13 billion in ETF assets. Uh, David is now joining me from the San Francisco Bay Area. David, great to have you back on the podcast. Nate, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Okay, so let's start bigger picture. I'm showing nearly $3 billion uh, into your ETF lineup this year, which I believe is the best year of ETF inflows ever for Franklin Templeton. And so to start, I'm, I'm just curious, what have been some of the drivers here as you think about this higher level? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Nate. Yeah, it's hard to believe. Uh, I, you know, I came over about seven and a half years ago, and at the time we had one fund at around $200 million to, to So to see us now at 60 funds and $13 billion in the U.S. is, is pretty awesome. Um, yeah, we've actually, uh, you know, we started with Smart Beta. We then launched Active. We had just launched, we launched Passive, and we can certainly dive in as much of that as possible. But, you know, specifically to your question, uh, we've seen some nice growth in all three of those sort of pillars of our lineup. So, um, you know, the biggest asset gatherers have been our, our, our low-cost passive funds with about $1.5 billion, but the smart beta keeps chugging along. That's almost $700 million. And, you know, Franklin Templeton, which is known for active management, uh, that's seen about $400 million as well. So in terms of 
you know, the growth, and I think the prior, te- prior uh, guest was touching on that, um, giving investors all of those options has really um, proven beneficial for us. And by the way, those options will be expanding because I saw this morning that Franklin Templeton filed for a spot Bitcoin ETF, which I think is very exciting. I know you can't speak to it, uh, given that that is a live filing, but I wanted to mention to listeners. Um, but going back to your point on smart beta, maybe we, we can unpack all three aspects of the Franklin Templeton business in terms of traditional passive, smart beta, and active. But if we go to smart beta, Look, you've been very successful in in this area, but it's interesting because I feel like smart beta has sort of been lost in the shuffle recently. There have been a lot of headlines around the growth of traditional active ETFs, uh, but smart beta feels a little bit forgotten to me. Now, that said, when I think about the potential value proposition of smart beta compared to traditional active, we've typically seen that it's a lower cost. You can remove the human emotion and and bias that may creep into traditional active manager decision-making. And so I think if you just take a step back, those are good things that, you know, are in the in the column, the, the good column for smart beta. But how do you view the overall health of the smart beta ETF category right now? Because, again, I just feel like uh, it's it's lost some of the attention that it was getting maybe five or six years ago. No, it's a very fair point. And, you know, I, I, I was looking at some of the flows because, you know, we've had two funds in particular that have been, um, that have been gathering assets within the smart beta, uh, space. But to your point, very fair point. Uh, uh, you know, two years ago, about 150 billion of net inflows into smart beta. Last year, about the same. And this year, you know, almost three fourths of the way through the year, we're only at 20 billion. Uh, so that is way off the pace that we've seen the last two years. And, you know, one of the things I've, I've been thinking about is smart beta was sort of that, that middle ground between I want index exposure, but I kind of want to have some active drivers of the index construction. Don't just give me market cap. Give me, you know, give me an opinion, um, whether it's to specific factors or tilts or, or methodology. And, you know, I do wonder with the ETF rule, coming on board, um, I guess it's now been three, four years ago, and specific regulations that got investors comfortable with active management. I wonder if, I wonder if what's happening is smart beta is kind of getting tugged more to the active direction than the index uh, passive direction. And, you know, investors are basically saying, okay, well, if it's an active approach and it can either be active or rules-based, maybe now I'll just give you the full flexibility to run your active strategies? I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a great question because it, 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 it certainly seems to be, um, you know, bigger picture within the ETF industry flows-wise uh, dragging. Well, I mean, do you think that that is a, a positive thing? Because, again, I go back to the original value prop of smart beta, which is that, and I know there's a lot of traditional active ETFs that have come in at a very low price point, but in general, if you look at smart beta ETFs compared to traditional active, they do tend to come in at a lower price point. But I think more importantly, you are removing that human emotion and bias. So do you think it's a good thing that the industry maybe is gravitating more to the traditional active side? And again, I know Franklin offers all three. And so I'm assuming you view all three positively, depending upon the type of investor. But any additional thoughts there? Yeah, I the the part that I've always found interesting, and, and I don't know if this is exactly answering the question, but um, you know, when I think about why investors wanted the and, I, you know, I'm putting up quotes, even though I know you can't see them. Passive market cap funds, uh, was it because 
they were low cost? Is it because they just want the market? Is it um, because they specifically like that index methodology? And so as you sort of move away from those types of funds, okay, so, okay, if my choices are between active and smart beta, I might gravitate towards the lower cost. I might gravitate towards the specific rules. You know, it's, it's, it's still sort of, you know, it's, it's easy to say active versus smart beta. Okay, um, give, me a, give me a rules-based approach. But, you know, you could make an argument that an active manager is going to have some philosophy that they're probably going to stay pretty true to um, based off of their, um, you know, their research and their history. So um, it could come down to a lot of the other parts of the ETF decision-making tree, which is, you know, the size and the liquidity and, and cost and everything else. Before we move on, I mean, is there a smart beta ETF or two you might point to in the Franklin Templeton lineup that is seeing some nice traction right now? Yeah, sure. So, so two in particular, uh, Divi, D-I-V-I, that is our um, international core dividend tilt, and LVHI, which is our low-vol, high-dividend uh, international equity uh, smart beta fund. And, you know, one of the interesting things about those two is, you know, I'll, I'll put them both within the smart beta I guess, category, but the Divi is meant to be um, tracking error conscious. So we, it doesn't want to drift too far away from the benchmarks, but it tilts towards dividend payers. So um, low cost, low tracking, as opposed to LVHI, which is, no, you're going to have some tracking error. This is a low volatility, high dividend uh, methodology that's meant to have some tracking error because it is giving a very, it's, you know, very specific exposure in terms of those low low volatility high dividend stocks so you know maybe this is even now back to your original question you've got this sort of spectrum between passive to active and even within there there's going to be like uh you know almost subsector so maybe the divi is more like a passive plus you know more uh you know low tracking error market cap conscious as opposed to maybe the uh L, you know our, our uh, lvhi which is more towards the active spectrum so both of those ETFs offer uh, international exposure, and it's interesting, David. So if I look across the Franklin Templeton ETF lineup right now, some of your most popular ETFs are actually single-country ETFs. So, for example, your second-largest ETF is the Franklin FTSE Japan ETF, ticker FLJP. And I can just go down the list here. I mean, there's a United Kingdom ETF, India, South Korea, Canada, et cetera, why have those been resonating? Yeah, so we launched our single country and regional suite. I think that started at the end of 2017. So it's been a little over, you know, I guess five and a half, almost six years now. And they were specifically launched to be uh, low cost beta exposures to those particular countries. Um, and we priced them in such a way that uh, especially compared to some of the larger funds that were already in the marketplace, that they would be 40, 50, 60 basis points cheaper. So the conversation for those, uh, you know, you mentioned FLJP, um, that, that's our FTSE Japan. Um, I think we've had about a half a billion of flows or more this year. The, the story was, hey, we're, we're, we can give you exposure at nine basis points uh, to, to Japanese equity markets, and we think that's the cheapest, cheapest in the industry. So that was the whole design of those funds. Going back to that whole, you know, my, my ETF spectrum of products, this is all on the far left. Hey, if you just want market exposure, that should be cheap and we can provide it. So a lot of our conversations were, hey, we can save you some real money on, on management fees through this lineup. Um, 
<laughs> but inherently, you know, the, the first few years, I guess maybe even more than that, was really um, lots of conversations about trading and liquidity to make sure that investors were getting all those management fee savings without losing anything with the uh, trading and execution. And, and we've seen that bear fruit now uh, really this year with about a, a billion and a half into those funds. Yeah, talk more about that because I, I guess two points there. You know, the cost on these ETFs is obviously very compelling. Nine basis points for single country exposure, that's obviously tough to beat. But you do have capital markets in your title, and so you're very well versed <laughs> on, uh, you know, the ETF liquidity side. So just as you look at bid-ask spreads, you know, I'm trying to think, okay, why might an investor use a much more expensive single country ETF, of which there are plenty out there, versus Franklin Templeton. And I can see somebody coming back to bid-ask spreads. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So that is, uh, you know, I, I, I've been in the ETF industry 20 years, and I think trading and liquidity has probably been about 95% of that. So this is a question we get all the time. Uh, there's the, um, okay, can I, can I put my uh, dollars into your fund? Okay, the answer is yes. Okay, it's going to cost me, um, a, a, a lot more because of the size of the spread or the volume, uh, because the counting stats are, are not as good. And that answer is no. Okay, so so we usually end up having a a conversation with um, with clients about why is that the case. And from a cap markets perspective, we really worked very closely with the uh, ETF market makers and the authorized participants to give them tools to make it as easy as possible to trade our funds as well. Uh, and so. Two things have happened, I would say, over the last couple of years. The first is because of all the uh, time spent within the ETF ecosystem, we've seen a real compression of our bid-ask spreads. So that's just made the conversations easier when if spreads used to be seven, now they're one or two or three cents in, in, in a lot of those single country names. And then secondly is uh, having live examples of, of what clients are trying to do. You know, I like to joke that we've got a, a brief case of case studies to show how easy it is to trade trade these funds in any manner, really arms us with the, um, with the answers to their concerns. Sometimes it's, can I do it? And then we show them that they can get in. Okay, well, I can get in, but nine months later, am I going to be able to get out? Uh, yes, you can. Here's some, here's some examples of, of, of selling. Okay, well, what if I wanted to do more of an algorithmic trading uh, over the course of the day? Same. We can, we can show VWAP or TWAP strategies where investors were able to do that in our names as well. So just as time goes on, and you know it's five and a half years later, uh, the proof is is there that they're getting more comfortable with the liquidity question, and then they get to um, get that management fee savings that we talked about. No, that's great insight, and uh, I would expect nothing less. Again, with uh, somebody with capital markets in their uh, title, but yeah, <laughs> investors should always look at the total cost of ETF ownership, and certainly bid ask spreads play a, a part in that. So I think it's an important area to hit on, uh, David. With our remaining time, so we've talked about. Some of the pure passive products with the single country ETFs. Obviously, we touched on smart beta earlier. Let's come to traditional active management, which I think a lot of investors, when they see that Franklin Templeton brand, that's what they think of. And you, you look on the ETF side of the equation, there's been a lot of recent momentum around active ETFs. There's been outsized inflows, a ton of new launches. It is clearly a hot area right now. What do you think has been driving that just at a high level? Uh, I still point to that uh, the when the ETF rule finally came 
out a few years ago, um, maybe it's 2019, 2020, um, when it was implemented, to have like explicit regulations that show that there's no operational differences between active and index funds. I just think that was a real, uh, it, it, it put to bed all of the um, uh, non-portfolio manager questions in terms of the operations and the creation redemptions and, and how baskets are managed. Like that, being able to point to that and say there's no difference whether there's you're tracking an index or whether you're not tracking an index. As far as trading liquidity, all the all the conversations we just we just had about the passive lineup that applies to active ETFs as well, and we and we can show examples there as well. So once we were able to move past sort of the ETF operational bit, we can then go to like, hey, so now you can get active expertise uh, within the ETF vehicle. Let's talk about our offerings. And and certainly one of the things that uh, we've been looking at is, um, you know, I guess. Part one, what are the gaps across all the Franklin Templeton lineups, vehicle notwithstanding? You know, we're talking mutual funds, SMAs, uh, and ETFs in terms of, you know, where, where we want to add, uh, add product. And then secondly, hey, who are, the, who are the teams and portfolio managers that investors like? And let's make sure that we can give them the best of Franklin across all vehicles because that's what they're looking for. And so I think that last bit really – Making sure that it's within the ETF form now that now that the operational parts are solved that that's 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 a real exciting uh, growth opportunity, uh, especially for Franklin Templeton. Yeah, in just a minute or two uh, left here, is there a Franklin ETF or two you would highlight in the traditional active category? Sure. So the ticker is uh, INCM uh, Income. That's the Franklin Income Focus ETF. That is. Uh, run by the same team that does that runs the Franklin Income Fund, uh, which I think is. Uh, celebrating its 75 years, if it just happened or it's about to happen. Uh, and I think that's our, the largest uh, mutual fund at Franklin Templeton. So exciting to work with that team. Uh, it's something that they've looked at for a while to, to think, okay, what's a, you know, philosophically the same but differentiated offering that we can bring within the ETF vehicle? Um, it's something clients have asked for. Uh, we launched it with $100 million of external dollars, and it's, it's uh, I think it just hit three months, and the trading's have been great in it so far. So it's we're, we're super excited. Well, David, again, great having you uh, back on the podcast. Next time, hopefully we'll talk about a, a, a live spot Bitcoin ETF, uh, but really <laughs> enjoy the conversation. Thank you for joining me. Thanks as always, Ben. I appreciate it. That was David Mann, head of ETF product and capital markets at Franklin Templeton. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Fidelity Investments. If you would like to learn more about Fidelity ETFs, you can visit Fidelity.com slash ETFs. Next week, I'll be joined by Astoria's John Davi. He's going to spotlight the recently launched U.S. Quality Kings ETF. And we'll also talk ETF model portfolio construction. And then Laura Mayfield, Senior Portfolio Manager at Fort Washington Investment Advisors, will cover several touchstone ETFs. Until then, have a great week, everyone. 